This is Conversations in Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, it's hard to turn on any news source and not be inundated with talk about the Ebola epidemic. While it has been thus far contained largely in West Africa, the first case in the United States has caused a ripple effect of reaction. And officials at the Centers for Disease Control have been saying all along we have a much more sophisticated infrastructure in place in the United States that could deal with any such outbreak. But when the first patient in Dallas succumbed to the disease, we realized there are public health protocols that have to be initiated across the country that's aimed at targeting, isolating, and aggressively treating any infections. Although uh, CDC Director Tom Frieden did say recently that a rapid global response has helped to contain the spread of the disease, unchecked it could have turned into the next AIDS epidemic, in his words. While that hasn't happened, uh, there have been thousands of casualties. There are so many healthcare workers that are among those who have died. That and the lack of available hospital beds as well as essential equipment has really contributed to the spread of the disease in these third world countries. Uh, Travelers coming in from the hardest hit areas are being screened at airports for fever and other potential symptoms while the out we seem to have a solid handle uh, on the situation here. The all frontline clinicians and providers know that while we tend to focus on a new and unknown threat like Ebola, we have the ongoing real threat to public health in this country from things like influenza every year or the proliferation of antibiotic-resistant bacteria. These pathogens are here at home. They lead to the deaths of thousands in this country every year. So I guess our vigilance has to be on many levels all the time. Margaret, you're 100% right, and it is a perfect time to remind our listeners to be vigilant when it comes to vaccinations. Flu vaccine is an easy uh, thing to obtain. It's highly effective in staving off about with the flu, which causes billions of dollars of lost productivity and health costs, as well as being lethal for certain populations. So do the right thing for you and your family and your loved ones and your community. Go out there and get a flu shot. Our guest today is at the helm of an organization that's dedicated to the eradication of diseases through genomic research. Dr. Eric Green is director of the National Human Genome Research Institute, a division of the National Institutes of Health. Dr. Green has been on board from the very beginning on the team that ultimately mapped the human genome. Lori Robertson will look into more false claims spoken about health policy in the public domain. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio.com or find us on Facebook or CHC Radio on Twitter because we love hearing from you. And we'll get to our interview with Dr. Eric Green in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Arianna O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. The death of the first Ebola patient in the U.S., combined with amped up fears, has sent the government and hospital administrators into action. While the federal government ordered screenings at a number of the nation's airports that received the highest percentage of passengers from Ebola Ground Zero in West Africa, hospitals and health centers are readying for the worst creating isolation areas, increasing the purchase of hazmat suits, and revising protocols for infectious disease management. Top health officials acknowledge this outbreak is troubling, and treatments are only experimental at this stage, but do believe the infrastructure in the U.S. will provide the necessary framework here to keep the outbreak in check. 
While Ebola continues to scare the population, enterovirus D68 is here, first charted in a children's hospital in Kansas City. Kids coming in with symptoms so severe they required ventilators in the ICU. They quickly realized it was beyond the scope of what they'd seen before. Now charted across the country with hundreds of cases reported in 45 states and the District of Columbia, the virus may be responsible for an estimated five deaths so far. Since there's no vaccine for the enterovirus, follow the old school protocol. The best way to prevent getting sick is to wash your hands. Walmart is taking some heat for dumping some 30,000 part-time employees off their insurance rolls, those working less than 30 hours per week, claiming the Affordable Care Act has increased their own personal health care costs. While it's encouraged some outrage from employee organizations and those supporting the health care law, there may be an upside to the headline. Those 30,000 employees will likely qualify for subsidized health coverage under Obamacare and might have gotten cheaper coverage that way. And we're fast approaching the second round of open enrollment under the Affordable Care Act. In some ways, it should be easier for folks to apply. Kinks have been worked out on the federal side and a number of state-based exchanges as well. Under the revised system, about 70% of the people who haven't bought coverage through the site before are likely to go through an identity verification portal and then complete an application that is 16 web pages long, down from 76 pages last year. There is, however, less money allocated this year for navigators who can assist customers through that new experience of shopping online for insurance while also trying to figure out what their options are for subsidies and the like. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these health care headlines. We're speaking today with Dr. Eric Green, director of the National Human Genome Research Institute at the National Institute of Health. Dr. Green has been at the Institute since 1994 and has been its director since 2009. The Institute is the largest organization in the world dedicated solely to genomics research. Prior to becoming director, Dr. Green led a large research group involved in studying the human genome, including being a start-to-finish participant in the Human Genome Project. Prior to joining the Institute, Dr. Green was professor of pathology, genetics, and internal medicine at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, where he earned his Ph.D. in cell biology as well as his M.D. He is also the founding editor of the Journal of Genome Research research and co-editor of the annual review of genomics and human genetics. Dr. Green, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you. Happy to be talking to you. You've played a major role in the, the Human Genome Project, uh, completed in 2003, clearly one of the great scientific achievements of the age. And as complex and groundbreaking as that task was, uh, you say it was really just a starting point. And the Human Genome Research Institute uh, was set up as a standalone research arm of uh, NIH in anticipation of significant role that genomics will play in the future. And you've been involved in genomics since the beginning. And tell our listeners, how has the Human Genome Project and subsequent genomic efforts influenced the uh, direction of medical research? And how has uh, the mission of your institute evolved over the years? I would probably describe genomics as transformative in many ways. The, you know, the Genome Project's goal was to create this foundational information resource about our blueprint, um, which then has provided since its completion 11 and a half years ago, really a context for being able to learn a tremendous amount about 
how the human body works by knowing more about our blueprint, but also knowing how our blueprint can break, leading to disease. And so it's it's been just not only something that those of us working in genomics have benefited from, but it's really finding its way across all areas of biomedical research. So, Dr. Green, at a recent NIH gathering, uh, you shared some pretty compelling conclusions of an external advisory group about how all components of NIH manage and use research data. And considering that there are thousands of research programs that are funded by NIH, that sheer amount of data has just got to be staggering. And I think that advisory group said that inaction on NIH's part would border on institutional malpractice by failing to capitalize on the use of biomedical big data. How is your institute in the NIH going to approach this issue of the problem or really the opportunity of big data, which seems to be somewhat confounding people in the health and science research space? Yes. I mean, it's a new world. I mean, it's not just a new world for genomics. In fact, it's not just a new world for biomedical research. This big data explosion we see everywhere in, almost, in many, many different disciplines. Genomics has become a bit of a poster child for the biomedical big data challenges. And the reason for that has to do with the technological explosions that have taken place in genomics since the end of the Genome Project whereby we have these incredibly powerful methods for now reading out our DNA, not just across one human, as we did in the Human Genome Project, but now have done this across tens of thousands of humans. And that creates massive digital data sets that are incredibly powerful to analyze, but that means that we have to get them in the hands of researchers around the world to analyze that kind of data. And that's just genomics data. So what this external group basically concluded was that we're seeing a shift in biomedical research where we're going from being relatively data poor to being data overwhelmed. Hmm. And genomics sort of led the way, but I don't want to leave your listeners with the impression that it's just genomics. Mm -hmm. We've had similar technological innovations in imaging um, capabilities, in our ability to um, access electronic uh, healthcare data and clinical data about individuals, and then there's other omics coming down the road besides just looking at DNA, but looking at our proteins and proteomics and our metabolism, metabolomics, and so forth. And so it was, the real call to arms, if you will, was a recognition that you know, it was time for NIH to figure out how to go forward in this era of big data that really is about biomedical big data. An, an interesting statistic that, um, is that if you go back to 1993, for example, if you took all of the world's genomic data, which is housed here in a public database called GenBank, 1993 it would fit on one CD-ROM. <laughs> you go to do that today and it would require 400 million four-drawer file cabinets to house all that data. And that's just genomic data. The future of biomedical research is going to be heavily a data science endeavor, and the question we had to ask ourselves is, are we prepared for that future, having been amazingly successful at developing new genomic technologies, new imaging technologies, and better and better ways of capturing people's health data? Well, that aligns with, uh, obviously, as part of the NIH's uh, program that's just launched the Big Data to Knowledge Initiative, or uh, BD2K, as it's called. And... Uh, while your institute's focusing on genomics, uh, you've been talking about the other omics, uh, emerging details in proteomics and uh, and the like. You, you say the BD2K uh, initiative is focused on improving 
the biomedical research enterprises that relates to the big data in the four key areas. Can you tell us uh, what these are and how you see this uh, facilitating more robust uh, data sharing and use platforms? Sure, and this is a very exciting trans-NIH program involving every part of NIH, not even just my institute. You know, the overarching aspect of this program is, as much as anything, to begin a cultural shift in science, in biomedical science in particular, whereby we value the production of data and the sharing of data in a fashion that allows and empowers other scientists to use all the data in very creative ways. And there's a lot of barriers to that. Some are, are cultural and some of them and some of them are mechanical and we're trying to fix all of those things. So among the components of BD2K is developing better ways of sharing data and finding data and giving people credit for data that mm -hmm. other scientists are using. Another component is building better software tools. We need to empower all scientists not just specialists, but all scientists to be able to analyze the data being generated, including data outside of your immediate field. So mm -hmm. if I have a genomics researcher, I want them to be able to analyze imaging data and see how it aligns with some of their genomic data. And if it's so specialized and they can't access that software to get the kind of results they need, that's a problem. So we need to enhance that capability. And then we need to set up a series of sort of centers of excellence, as we call them, where we have major groups whose focus is how to get broader use of these incredibly large data sets and have lots and lots of scientists really around the world analyzing all the world's biomedical research data in creative ways that you know, really wasn't possible before. And so we're funding groups to help really come up with those solutions. You know, uh, Dr. Green, so often on our, uh, our show and in conversations, we come back to the issue uh, at one level, you could call it workforce, right? Who are Who are these people in this... Uh, new world of big data that are going to do this work. And you've addressed the fact that there's something of a scarcity of data scientists uh, in the marketplace who are equipped to handle this volume of big data out there and the challenges and the opportunities that it pose. I have a feeling that BD2K is also thinking about training, you know, both training people in the field now, training people who are going to come uh, through the field in the future. Maybe you could tell us a little more about how do we, how do we really create this, this next generation of data scientists for this work? No, it's a great question. When I give talks, I sometimes show a slide from an article that was featuring uh, the new opportunities in data science, and I called the data scientist the sexiest job of the 21st century. <laughs> and uh, I show this article to my teenage children and remind them of that because, indeed, they're the generation that are going to see this thing be reality. So we're thinking about that at NIH for biomedicine. And we're thinking about how do you train the next generation, and, and that's part of the BD2K initiative is to develop new curriculum and develop new approaches to make, you know, a graduate student or a medical student or a pharmacy student and, and you know, all the health professions very facile with analyzing, manipulating big data because that's the world we're going to live in. So part of it is writing the next generation. But let's not forget about the current generation. Mm -hmm. I think about my medical school classmates, my graduate school classmates, and you know, we, we, we all have uh, another couple decades ahead of us in our profession. And, and the fact is the world of big data and data science has come on fast and furious. Mm -hmm. And we were not trained for any of this in graduate school or medical school. So what are, the, what are the things that we could put into place to help mid-career individuals mm -hmm. climb that, uh, that competency ladder, if you will? 
all these things are important and all these things we are looking at and are and in fact are funding uh, programs to to address both of these areas. We're speaking today with Dr. Eric Green, director of the National Human Genome Research Institute at NIH where he previously served as scientific director at the institute and director of the genome technology branch. Uh, we're seeing the world respond to global epidemics from hep C to Ebola, and the scientific community has amped up their efforts to create effective uh, treatments. And while these epidemics uh, are certainly frightening, the truth is far more common deadly pathogens that probably will uh, you'll encounter, including antibiotic-resistant uh, bacteria that are having devastating effects on human health. And how does genomics play a role in this dash to find treatments or cures for emerging diseases like Ebola and uh, morphine pathogens like antibiotic-resistant uh, bacteria? This really represents one of the very beneficial outcomes of the Human Genome Project and subsequent programs. Uh, you know, the Human Genome Project mostly focused on human and another small set of organisms and their genomes. But uh, the immediate programs that follow the Genome Project involve developing new powerful technologies for sequencing DNA, and those can be used to sequence a bacteria or a virus's DNA just as easily, in fact, much easier mm -hmm. uh, than sequencing a human genome because a human genome is much, much bigger than a microbe genome. And so what we're finding is that the cost and also the speed at which you can sequence a microbe is really remarkable now, such that in the case of the recent story with Ebola, we are able to sequence, and our, one of our investigators, a good colleague of ours, did just this study, got some of the early isolates from Ebola outbreak and quickly sequenced the genomes of those isolates, and with that gave immediate information mm -hmm. about uh, sort of the origins of it and some of the patterns of transmission that otherwise might have taken months, if not years, to figure out. So in we can get real-time readout of what's going out in an infectious outbreak like Ebola. Now what's happening in, with antibiotic-resistant bacteria, where we think we know what the routes of transmission are, now you can do detective work by sequencing the isolates as they appear in different patients, and as we've seen story after story, surprises uh, come about where you figure out that what you thought was happening is not really what's happening. And that teaches us immediately how to better contain some of these outbreaks, mm -hmm. even within a hospital. Dr. Green, I'd like to take a look at what I, I think if we look back over the arc of time uh, since 2003 and the conclusion of the Human Genome Project, one of the real promises seemed to be the concept of personalized medicine or precision medicine, as some people call it where each of our unique genomes would be the guide for the treatment protocols tailored to fit us specifically. And while the cost of sequencing uh, one's own uh, genome has come down significantly, it, it seems as though this reality is still a long way off, or at least it's not spoken about as part of our current practice pattern. What is the state of the science at this point about personalized medicine? Yeah, I actually might slightly disagree with you in that I actually think it is starting to be here and now. And I, I might just point to the Angelina Jolie story uh -huh. as an example where there's a situation when she came, was very public about this mm -hmm. and it illustrated a situation where she has a, a change in her genome that makes her, in a well-known gene, mm -hmm. that makes her susceptible to breast and ovarian cancer. I would actually say go look on the newsstands and you'll see um, that just came out a couple of weeks ago, a big, thick, special issue of Time magazine all about DNA and genomics and how DNA shapes our life. I see routinely, at least in the Washington, D.C. area now, cancer treatment centers and healthcare networks 
and they're using the word genomics and their advertisements that are streamed into your mm -hmm. living room. Those examples are some of the low-hanging fruit, mm -hmm. and I would immediately tell you that you know we're maybe one percent of the way towards implementing personalized medicine, genomic medicine, precision medicine, whichever word you want to use. The best is yet to come. But in areas like cancer, and it's here and now for some kinds of cancer. Another example is pharmacogenomics, big word, pharmacology and genomics. Mm -hmm. uh, the reason we all respond to medications differently is because of differences in our genomes that influence how we metabolize drugs. And for more and more drugs, we're figuring out who are the good responders versus the bad responders by reading out specific parts of the genome. And I think the other area that's here and now for precision medicine has to do with these rare cases of, of diseases that sort of stump clinicians, these diagnostic odysseys mm -hmm. that often, is often involve children, but sometimes adults. You know, now for a few thousand dollars, you can read out their mm -hmm. genome sequence, and in a fair percentage of the case, you can figure out what's wrong with them. Dr. Green, we had your uh, colleague, uh, NIH Director, uh, Dr. Francis Collins, on the show a while back. He expressed some grave concerns about the cuts uh, to funding for NIH research and the impact it would have on future research. It's always had a history of uh, being supported across the board, and that seems to have changed. And, uh, you know, you and Margaret were talking earlier about the sort of uh, group of young people that we want to come into this field, and they, they don't do it for the money for the most part, but money does help. So give our listeners an assessment of what's happening in the state of scientific research funding, including genomics and the impact these budget cuts are having on the present and future research protocols at NIH. It's not a good situation. Mm -hmm. I mean, and as an American, you know, America led in genomics during the Human Genome Project. Some of these spectacular technological advances I've talked about that have come about in the last uh, 11 and a half years since the Genome Project ended have been brought about by generous uh, support of investigators in the private sector, which is, was also met by uh, a granting program we had here that's led to that. And yet, if we look around uh, the, where the countries are really increasing their commitment to research and genomics research in particular. It's not the United States. And we risk ceding our lead in this area if we're not careful. If you actually look at what's happened to our budget over the last decade, our purchasing power has uh, basically dropped by 25%. So overall, we have 25% less dollars to do our science with than we did a decade ago. And this is at a time where we should be filling up our fuel tank, uh, not, uh, not starving it. Absolutely. It is really not a good situation. The first outcome is we're just not making advances as mm -hmm. quick as we could. But the second consequence is that we are scaring off the next generation because we are not convincing them that this is a value in the United States and that there's going to be opportunities for them to run their laboratories or mm -hmm. to conduct the kinds of clinical studies that are going to be needed in the future. And so it's hard to give encouraging signals to the next generation when they look at these curves and they see these trends and they say this is not going to be supported well in the United States. Well, Dr. Green, I suspect that part of your motivation for creating a very popular exhibition with the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History in Washington might have been to create the kind of public excitement and awareness among the population at large about the uh, importance and the excitement of this work. I 
think some three million visitors have already seen the interactive exhibit, The Genome, Unlike, Unlocking Life's Code, which is now on the road for four to five years. Can you maybe just share some of the highlights from that exhibition? You know, 25 years ago or so when I got involved in genomics, it was really just scientists that thought about it and talked about it. I think if you fast forward to today, the public is starting to hear the word genomics because the public is seeing it communicated through healthcare professionals when they have to talk about cancer or when they're talking about a certain drug they might get. So genomics is becoming part of the language of society, and therefore we felt part of our obligation in leading genomics in the United States is to think a little bit uh, about genomic literacy. And so we formed a partnership with the Smithsonian to put on this exhibition because we are now convinced that genomics is important for day-to-day -day life. Um, and in particular, your healthcare. And so this exhibition um, is, it was marvelously successful while it was opened here in the Washington, D.C. area. But we also wanted to get it around the country. And so it's now on a four to five year tour to basically have a lot of people see it. And it's, it's really, it's been very gratifying to do the project. And we've gotten very positive feedback that indeed the public is mm -hmm. engaged in what they're learning and really see its relevance. We've been speaking with Dr. Eric Green, director of the National Human Genome Research Institute at the NIH. You can learn more about their work by going to genome.gov. Dr. Green, thank you so much for joining us in Conversations on Healthcare today. Great. Nice talking to you. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in US politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Well, birth control has become an issue in a few Senate races across the country, and some Republican candidates are proposing the sale of oral contraceptives, or the pill, over-the-counter without a prescription. The idea isn't new. Reproductive health organizations formed a working group to explore the issue a decade ago. They support over-the-counter birth control pills as a way to increase access for women. But Congress can't make this happen. Instead, it's up to a drug manufacturer to submit an application to the Food and Drug Administration and the FDA to then review and approve it. And when it comes to the pill, there are many different brands and formulations that would have to go through the same process. In Colorado, Republican Cory Gardner has been pushing the idea and says over-the-counter sales would make the pill cheaper. But it's not clear whether that would be the case. The available research is mixed, and it doesn't specifically address the pill. Research from 2005 found out-of-pocket costs decreased for antihistamines, but a 2002 study found consumers' costs went up for certain drugs that moved from prescription to over-the-counter status. Emergency contraception, or the morning-after pill, went up a bit in price when it became available without a prescription. Under the Affordable Care Act, most private insurance plans are required to cover the full cost of female contraception, including the pill, sterilization, IUDs, and more, with no cost sharing. What would happen if the pill were sold over-the-counter? Gardner's campaign says he wants women to be able to be reimbursed through their insurance. But that didn't stop Planned Parenthood votes from saying in a TV ad that he wants women to, quote, pay for all of it. That's not what Gardner has proposed. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. 
FactCheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have FactCheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Healthcare providers are forever on the lookout for that magic elixir that can cure a host of chronic ills in one step. And in the case of obesity, depression, anxiety, and stress, that elixir could be, turns out, a number of steps, as in taking a hike. A large study conducted by several institutions, including the University of Michigan and Edge Hill University in the U.K., looked at the medicinal benefits derived from regular group hikes conducted in nature. We could see that these two different types of help for our mental well-being, they're operating independently. That means that if we go out in nature for a walk, we're getting an additional boost to our mental well-being. Researchers evaluated some 2,000 participants in a program called Walking for Health in England, which sponsors some 3,000 walks per week across the country. You know, this is a, a national study in the U.K. There was investment in these walking groups, in training leaders to take people on walks, finding trails that were good for people to do, even if they had health problems. Dr. Sarah Warber, professor of family medicine at the University of Michigan School of Medicine, said this study showed a dramatic improvement in the mental well-being of participants, especially those who had recently experienced something stressful. Depression was reduced, perceived stress was reduced, and people had, they experienced more positive feelings or positive emotions. And there's been really lovely research that's shown that when we have positive emotions, we actually have better health in the long run. Other studies have shown a link between mood and exercise. But Dr. Warber says this is the first study that revealed the added benefits of group hikes in nature and significant mitigation of depression. Because we were really interested in whether if you are more stressed, would you get some better benefit uh, from being in nature. And in fact, that did pan out. Walk for Health, a simple guided group nature hike program which incentivizes folks suffering from depression and anxiety to step into the fresh air with others, to talk out their thoughts while taking a hike, improving their mood, reducing their depression, increasing their overall health at the same time. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center. Mm-hmm.